Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Schward Consulting for sponsoring this episode. Schward Consulting is a leading solar consulting firm dedicated to design, engineering, and owner's representation in all areas of solar photovoltaics for the commercial, industrial, and utility markets. Thank you again for sponsoring the podcast. Remember, our mission has been to bring new capital into the clean energy space. So we started when yield co's were functioning, right? And, and they're sort of coming back to the market now, but in 2015, 2016, they were sort of at their peak, right? And they're buying up all this utility scale stuff. Hello, and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangent, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm really excited to have my guest, John Powers. John Powers is the co-founder and president of Clean Capital. Clean Capital invests in distributed solar and energy storage projects and has more than 465 million assets under management. But I'm excited because, John, I know you mentioned that actually is changing today because you just closed a transaction. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And John's clean energy and national security expert committed to making clean energy accessible to everyone. John leads corporate strategy, operations, investor relations, and marketing for clean capital. But I know as well, John, you mentioned too, your roles changed a little bit. So it'd be great to hear exactly what you're working on. Prior to joining clean capital, John led public sector business development at Bloom Energy. His passion for clean energy stems from his time serving with the U.S. Army in Iraq, where he learned how vital clean energy is to protecting national energy security. And John, thank you for your service. He helped to revolutionize the U.S. energy program first as a special advisor for energy to the assistant secretary of the Army and later as the director of outreach for the Army Energy Initiative Tax Force. In 2012, John was appointed to the post of the Federal Chief Sustainability Officer by President Obama. He was named to Washington Life's Top 25 Tech Leaders in D.C. in 2016 and named to Renewable Energy World's inaugural Solar 40 Under 40. Also, Clean Capital has their own podcast called the Experts Only Podcast. You definitely should check it out. John's the host, and they have a lot of great guests that they interview, and it explores the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. Thank you, John, for being on the, the Solar Maverick podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I love the podcast. Yes, and it's great having you on the podcast, really, because you have such a unique and varied experience and your passion for renewable energy, both from the public sector and then now you have a successful company in the private sector. Can you tell us about Clean Capital? I know I gave like a very high-level description, but I think it would be great if you could go more in-depth. Yeah. So Clean Capital, we just entered our fifth year. We launched and actually received our seed funding in 2015. Had been working a couple of years prior to that to get started. But really with Clean Capital, we stepped back and said, how do we bring more capital into the clean energy space? If we're going to solve the climate crisis, we need more than just private equity. We need broader institutional pension money and others. And said, where in the chain can we help bring efficiency? And so we sort of studied the market. We also studied what was happening in other assets like real estate, student loans, 
and there was a sort of merging fintech space. And we were studying where technology was bringing efficiency in those deals and said, how can we bring that, those solutions into clean energy? So what Clean Capital does is we, we identify clean energy assets. We write, underwrite them really efficiently with our technology platform that's internal to us. And then we acquire those assets, distributed generation. And I'll talk more about that in a second with investment partners, firms like BlackRock, Carvel. We have acquired to date over $500 million in assets. Most of that's come in just the last 18 months or so. We think is sort of the third largest owner of distributed generation assets now in the country. Uh, we've got uh, nearly 200 megawatts of solar assets in 12 different states. And we're continuing to grow that. And now we're beginning to move into other verticals. And we don't just acquire the assets, we actually stay in and actively manage them on behalf of our partners. So what we've done really well to date is the, our ability to really efficiently and quickly underwrite and close deals. So give you an example, we did a deal last year, we, from origination to closing was less than five weeks. Oh, and we amazing. got that through our process and then through our partner's process. And you know we're looking to sort of take the next step here in 2020 and bring new capital into continue to work on bringing new capital. What I mean by that is, so for instance, BlackRock had never done distributed generation before we partnered. Carvel had never done solar before. Now they're actually taking a major step to build out a clean energy fund. BlackRock's continued to grow in the DG space. And we're seeing more and more institutional investors wanting to get closer and closer to these DG projects. And we have a really strong platform to help them make those acquisitions. That's amazing to hear that you're able to close uh, transactions within five weeks. Can you talk more about how that happens? And then as well, does your really, is it the technology platform that you've created? Has that really helped expedite the process? Or, or what are some of the major things that have helped move these transactions to initial origination yeah. opportunity to closure? Yeah, I mean, I think where we, we, our efficiency is driven by a couple of things, right? We're lucky to have just an amazing rock star team. We have a very clear underwriting process that's enabled by technology. So we're able to, you know, with, we can sort of move as fast as the seller. Let's put it that way. You know, we have found some sellers are more motivated than others. So the quicker we can get all the information into our platform, we can underwrite. I mean, it's almost like having night vision goggles when you use our platform because we can get into deals in places that, you know, we end up sometimes knowing more about them than the sellers do by the time we get to closing. Oh, wow. And that value helps us turn to a partner like BlackRock or Carvel and say, hey, here's what we're seeing. Here's these additional values we think we can bring. Here's some of the challenges in this portfolio. And then, you know, some of it at that point, is it's just some process, right? It's getting through investment committees and some of those standard pieces, but we're enabled by the technology to move relatively efficiently. And what is unique about our technology is, you know, we didn't try to overly engineer a perfect solution. We built what we needed to execute. And our chief technology officer, Mark Garrett, who doesn't come from clean energy or finance to begin with anyways, really looked at workflow and how to improve it. We don't have millions of users or it's not a software for service. We have a limited people that use it. And it's the lawyers and it's the due diligence teams. And then it's the asset managers in the back end. And I think every time people have been in it, they just gotten just phenomenal accolades on how easy and efficient it is to use. So we're pretty excited about that. And we're sort of figuring out what the next step for that technology is. But it's really important for us to try to bring efficiency into this market so we can accelerate 
CNI Solar and DG Assets as a whole. Definitely. That is really interesting. I remember hearing that you mentioning as well, there was a transaction, I guess, of solar assets that BlackRock uh, didn't move forward with. But then I guess once you were reviewing it using clean capitals, it was a big portfolio of a lot of small assets. They were then able to see the value because of the due diligence that you were able to do using Yeah, that's exactly right. We did a 46 megawatt acquisition with them, which was 60 plus individual assets and a handful of states. And when they, most institutionals will look at that and the level of due diligence necessary, they just don't have the teams to do it. It's a major lift for the amount of money they're putting out the door, but we can do it more efficiently and then come back to them and say, show them the values that they were missing I think they realized why it was a good investment. And then they actually liked the platform so much, they invested in our corporate to be part of the team. That's great. And that's amazing to hear. Can you talk about like how the company was started and how did you know the co-founders? I know you talked about Mark, who's more of the technical co-founder. You know, Then there's also Tom, who's actually been interviewed on the podcast. Yeah. The Solar Maverick podcast. He actually was one of our first interviews, episode 14. And it's about how institutional capital is transforming the renewable energy market. But it would be great to understand like how the company started and then how you, did you know the co-founders? And it's amazing too, like as you mentioned, in a year and a half to acquire 200 megawatts worth of projects. That's a, an amazing accomplishment. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, we've got a pretty classic origin story, right? Where Tom was a general counsel at a private equity firm in New York doing renewable investing. I was had just left the White House and was working for Bloom out in Silicon Valley. But Tom's brother-in-law and I served in Iraq together. So he'd been for years trying to get us together. And then we met and Tom had just refinanced his law school loans on a fintech platform called SoFi.com. And you'll see a lot of ads out there for student loans and home loans. And as a matter of fact, they had a Super Bowl ad a couple of years ago. And it's just a really cool fintech platform that makes it easy to transact. And Tom had the idea of said, hey, why can't we do this for clean energy? And then we started to sort of work on a business plan. It really took us two years of working on a business plan, of sharing with folks, getting feedback. You know, we were all, we're not 25 and trying to run this out of our trunk, right? We were sort of seasoned and more importantly, a little more risk adverse because we had multiple kids and wanted to make sure when we started a company, we had healthcare, stuff that was a classic challenge for a startup. We brought in a third co-founder, a guy named Kevin Johnson, who I had served in the army with as well. And Kevin had a ton of deal experience. You know, we were starting to flush the idea out more. And then we went to raise, and remember the original clean capital business model was actually crowdfunding. We were going to do not just the fintech underwriting side, but also crowdfund. And then as we went to raise money, you know, on our idea, I'd have to have having a lot of different feedback from folks in the community. People kept telling us, energy guy, finance guy, deal guy, you're missing a tech guy and you're trying to build a tech company here. So through some networks that I had, we met Mark. Mark had just sold a company he was running and was really hungry to make a difference and, you know, really fit what we were trying to do. And so he became our fourth co-founder. And we launched with Seed Capital in 2015. The first year, just to give you a little more color on sort of the growth, right? The first year we did our first transaction, it was backed by John Hancock, the life insurance company. It was a eight mega or 15 megawatt, no, wait, eight megawatt, 15 project portfolio. We actually crowdfunding the equity, crowdfunding the equity, which was fascinating to do and really was interesting to see how much desire there is for folks to invest in the clean energy space. But also, we were spending a lot of time finding the investors versus finding the projects. Sure. So we closed that deal. In the second year, as we were getting momentum, we partnered with 
generate capital based in San Francisco and generate. We sort of lined up a warehouse facility with them where we were buying up. We ended up doing close to $50 million in assets in that second year where technology was getting better. We were working really close with the Generate team, but we just sort of decided at the end of that year, jointly, we were heading in sort of different directions and you know had a sort of amicable divorce with their team. And by that third year, we had sort of lined up new capital with Carvel investors. Our technology was humming. We had our underwriting really down. And then the floodgates began to open and sort of in May of 18, we did our first transaction with Carvel and it just started a, a cycle of transaction, transaction, transaction. And as we quickly scaled up, which for many reasons has its challenges, right? And how do you sort of manage that scale and continue to sort of function? But it's been a really exciting time. We've got a really amazing sort of rockstar team at Clean Capital. I think that's, you know, technology aside, the thing we have best is just really great culture and great teammates that are mission driven. So it's allowed us to hit sort of the point where we are now. And, you know, we just think the a little bit of the sky's the limit here where we, with continued efficient capital, we are growing state by state and hopefully someday going to international markets. And I think it's critical, we're seeing this today, this next decade is going to be critical in solving the climate crisis and having the right money in the door to do that and do these deals is going to be super important. And I think that motivates us every day. This is really helpful, really, to understand how the company started. And it's interesting to see how it's changed in a very short period of time. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I feel like we've had, when we did our Series A, we did a Series A now going on over two years ago. And we went on to raise, if folks don't know Series A, Series A is basically like, think about the different pools of money. You get seed money, seed capital will start as you're growing. You get Series A and then Series B and C and whatever. So really our next capital raise to grow the company, we went to the clean energy space and people in the clean energy space on the venture capital side, I'd sort of say, didn't fully get what we were doing or they really wanted us to focus on the crowdfunding side of it and democratizing the investor base. But the guys in the fintech space that were in other assets but did not understand solar uh, or clean energy, once we explained that market to them, they just saw a new emerging market for efficiency with technology, right? And they got it. And so we had a whole core of sort of early fintech pioneers invest in our series A. And the guidance and advice they gave us as we looked to grow the company was really important in how we adjusted. People talk about pivots and startups and whatever. I, you know, I don't know if we've had major pivots. We've had adjustments. And those adjustments in business model helped sort of open the floodgates for us. Yeah, definitely. That is pretty interesting that the fintech investors really understood the model and what you're trying to do. So that they didn't get solar, right? And that's people looked at solar like, well, these certain solar stocks are not doing great. Once you explain the asset class and how they worked and how these are 20 year power purchase agreements with credit worthy off takers, the light bulbs started going off, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. So that is actually, you know, very interesting. So obviously, you're focused on investing in distributed energy projects. Can you maybe talk in more detail of like the types of projects that are your preferences? Obviously, you know, you mentioned long term power purchase agreements. It would be helpful to kind of know, I know you've invested a lot as well in in service assets, but you're also investing in brand new projects. Can you give an idea of like what's like an ideal sort of project? Obviously, certain return thresholds to be able to move forward. Sure. So remember, our mission has been to bring new capital into the clean energy space. So we started when 
yield codes were functioning, right? And, and they're sort of coming back to the market now. But in 2015, 2016, they were sort of at their peak, right? And they're buying up all this utility scale stuff. What we liked about the model, though, is that these are built projects, contracted cash flow. And if you're explaining that to someone who's never invested in clean energy, they get that. What they struggled with is the construction risk, the investment tax credit, all those other issues that new builds, would refer to as a new build tax. So we started buying up operating assets, reaching out. We built a list of every project in the country. We started reaching out to those developers. And a lot of those developers were sort of smaller, mid-tier folks that didn't even know they had the ability to sell at this point. There wasn't enough liquid market. And they saw the yield codes as only going after sort of utility scale or pretty big portfolios, right, to be able to fill up their, their coffers. So we were one of the few people that say, hey, we're willing to help you get some liquidity here. So we started buying those up. As we began to scale, then we had better capital so that we could start going after some of the larger portfolios. And when I say a portfolio, so we, you know, we're talking about, we have over 100 sites right now. We've got 180 megawatts. And those range from, we have a couple that are 500 750s. We have a lot of megawatts-ish projects. We have one that's at the Indianapolis airport that's close to 13 megawatts. But most of them are sort of in the one to five megawatt range as DR750 to 5 megawatt range as individual projects. And then in portfolios, you could be in the sort of the 50 to sort of $75 million range is a great sweet spot for us. Once you start getting to 100, 100 plus million, you start seeing more investment bank run processes where someone will take that to Cohen Resnick or someone else to sort of sell it for them. We're still competitive there and we still win those. But we love to be able to sort of do the transaction directly with the seller because it brings efficiently efficiency. It cuts out the middleman a little bit, honestly. And, you know, we can put, they can actually get more out of the deal when they're not paying an advisor. And the reality is we're pretty dead on on our pricing right now with the market where we're able to, whether it went through investment process or one-to-one transaction, we can do that well. I think we see stuff coming through brokers, which is great. I think that's actually a really good model. The bigger, huge investment bank processes, you know, once you get to a certain scale, we'll move away from those huge portfolios and look at deals that we think we can get done. Now we're moving earlier in the development line, going back to the fact that we have this technology that helps us underwrite the deals, right? That technology is asset agnostic. So it's operating solar or new build solar or storage. For the most part, project finance is project finance. And you know, there's things we've got to tweak in there, but you know, the efficiency the technology has is the same in all those different verticals. So you know, now we can do, we're doing new build solar, which will bring in a tax equity partner on. And then we're starting to do solar. We'd love to get solar plus storage. We haven't done that yet. But again, the commercial industrial DG market for us is sort of where we have the most success because we can utilize the efficiencies that we bring to get the best price for the seller and our partners. When you get into the utility scale stuff, basically a little bit of a race to the bottom, who can get the deals done? Definitely. And that is really a great insight and really helpful to learn You know what type of projects that you're focusing on. And it's interesting to hear too, that you're focused on the commercial industrial DG market when you talk about new builds. You know, we have a lot of great offtake partners. So we always talk about a seller, but also we work really hard to engage, whether it be, you know, we have Amazon warehouses, FedEx warehouses, but we also have school districts and hospitals and we in community colleges. 
and we'll engage their facility team pretty regularly. We hear a lot, hey, this firm that owned this asset for the last five years, we never heard it from them except for when we got our invoice, right? And we take a different approach and we have a very open dialogue with those off takers, which has been great because it provides us a chance to optimize those assets, extend contracts, things that if we just were sort of a cold-blooded asset manager, they wouldn't be as welcoming to it. That's a really interesting point, John. Obviously, like when you have, you're talking about like in-service assets and renegotiating the long-term offtake. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Ending exactly. It, which is huge, obviously, because the longer the contracted period, the better for the economics of the project. So that's really interesting insight. It's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. And not because people aren't interested. It's just what we learn is that, you know, many times an off taker is not thinking about a contract that's seven years left on it. So it takes a little bit of education and conversation to get them to a point that say, hey, yeah, we can take some action here. That's smart to be proactive early in the process and hopefully, obviously, getting them to make that change and to look at it even if it's seven years out. So that's pretty interesting. How does uh, Clean Capital differentiate itself from you know other investors in the market? It was interesting because you mentioned how like for utility scale projects, it's just hard from a return perspective. So that's yeah. why you're focusing on commercial industrial DG that you don't want to be part of like big banks, big process for a certain amount of megawatts. It would be great to understand. And I know you talked a little bit about it, but still it would be great to understand how clean capital with all the capital in the market differentiates itself. Yeah. it's First of all, it's hard to do, right? And I feel like more and more capital is coming in, more and more players are coming in. We will go after the investment bank processes if we think there's a an opportunity for us to, to differentiate ourselves. And what does, I think our biggest strength is our ability to efficiently transact and to do it quickly, right? Where, you know, some of these processes will drag out for significant periods of time. We saw a deal last year that was hundreds of megawatts and we were in the final rounds of some of the biggest players. It was a great learning exercise for us and you know, I think enhanced our confidence in our technology and what we do. But we can the same look at a deal that is 15 assets really quickly and efficiently and just get it done, right? Because I feel like these processes drag on and reality is if we can do them in an efficient manner, and get people to go align, that's a huge, huge, huge value add where there's enough deals that sort of break apart in this market where they don't have the confidence that you'll sort of be there in the end. And I think people, for the most part, have confidence we, we will be. And we really focus on wanting to have repeat business, right? So it's important for us to not be assholes, if you can bleep that out, but wanting to work through this and get to the goal line here. That's not always how people sort of view it. There's a lot of retrading and there's other challenges that happen. And you know, we want to do our best to not be in that position. Sometimes it happens when you uncover warts on a project, for instance, you got to say, oh man, this is something we've got to adjust the price on. But the more you can not do that, I think the better it is for return business. Definitely. I mean, I think that's another huge point. I mean, there's a lot of different differentiators that you spoke about with clean capital, but I think as well, the scalability of building relationships and doing repeat business as well as a huge component, as you mentioned. So that's pretty interesting to hear that and being efficient and doing deals quickly. That, that's huge and moving the process. So It's important to have sort of a good reputation in the space because it's, it's not a huge market. So making sure that you are able to engage and continue to engage folks and they want to come back, I think is really important because you're going to see people come back around on other deals. 
Oh, yeah. Whether it be the lawyers or the advisors or the owners. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I would like to thank Schwerd Consulting for being the sponsor for this episode. Schwerd Consulting is a leading solar consulting firm dedicated to design, engineering, and owner's representation in all areas of solar photics for the commercial, industrial, and utility markets. At Schwerd Consulting, they like to say, we know solar, we don't just do solar. What sets them apart is their 100% focus on solar and understanding the business of their clients. In its five years of business, Schwerd Consulting has provided services for approximately 450 megawatts of PV across over 330 sites and 15 states plus the Caribbean. That total includes 300 megawatts of completed designs and engineering and 150 megawatts of consulting and owner rep services. Let Schwerd Consulting take the burden off you and bring ease and expertise in all areas of engineering and design or help you navigate the technical world of solar. If you're interested in learning more about Schwerd Consulting, you can call at 215-219-6718 or email at admin at schwerdconsulting.com. Schwerd Consulting website is www.schwerdconsulting.com. We'll also have this information as well in the notes of the podcast. Steve Schwerd, who's the owner of Schwerd Consulting, was interviewed on episode 17 and 48 of the Solar Maverick podcast and also episode 42, which was a panel discussion on how solar technology is changing the world. Thank you to Schwerd Consulting for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. It would be great to talk about your previous experience in the Army and public sector and how you got interested really in renewable energy and energy security. I, you know, I think I've heard it before, and I think it would be really great for the audience to hear. I didn't come to this sort of nationally or academically. I went, grew up in Buffalo, New York, went, in the, went to John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, where I did ROTC. So when I graduated, I went directly into the service and was stationed overseas. And then 9-11 happened. And like many of my colleagues got deployed into Iraq and was there in the early part of the war. So 2003 to 2004, I spent 15 months in both Baghdad, where I spent almost a year in an area called Adamiya. And I'll talk more about that in a second. And then uh, later in Najaf. And that was for, you know, like many vets was a completely life-changing experience for me. I was a elementary education major to give you a sense of sort of where I had intended to go, sort of post the army, I was going to be a school principal. Went in the army, spent time overseas, and we were living in one of Uday Hussein's palaces on the Tigris River. And it was in the most hostile sector of, of Baghdad at the time called Adamiya. So basically, you think about we had the Tigris River on one side of us, and we had a wall with this town on the other side of us. And we had a group of Iraqis who came to work on the base every day, and we let them, we did that sort of give people jobs and try to build community. And this is, remember, the early part of the war. We also knew they left with certain intelligence. When they left, so they say they left, they left the facility at 5.30. By 6.30, we were receiving mortar rounds wherever our fuel trucks were. So it just became common practice that you know, they'd leave and we'd move our fuel trucks. So that was sort of a really, just the idea of energy started to percolate. And then getting into, you'll hear a lot of vets talk about fuel convoys and the effect that had on them. So I began to understand the concept of energy uh, and also understand there had to be a better way. And when I came home, I really began to look into it, start to understand clean energy, understand climate. And I started to focus on it from a national security perspective. So I had the honor of sort of testifying to the Senate 
around the Waxman Markey bill, which is around 2000 and 2008, 2009. And I was testifying the national security implications of climate change with a former senator named John Warner, who was an amazing guy, former secretary of the Navy, was married to Elizabeth Taylor, a three-star admiral named Denny McGinn, who had gone on to lead A-Corps and been a secretary of the Navy. And I knew neither of them at, at the time. And then a lawyer from one of the energy companies. During the testimony, Warner gives this 10,000-foot geopolitical national security piece. The retired admiral gave a very admiral-esque discussion of the issues. And I sort of talked about what it was like for the troops on the ground and what it would be to de- de- deploy in the sub-Saharan Africa where climate was making a difference. And then this lawyer from the oil companies was sort of going off about how we didn't have to act until India or China acts, pretty standard talking point at the time. And I sort of pushed back and slapped the table and said, hey, First of all, I didn't know the rules of testimony, so I shouldn't have not have done that. But I started yelling. I said, when's the last time India or China sent their troops anywhere? It's, it's, it's my friends that are going to be deploying into these places. So afterwards, Warner sort of took me under his wing and said, hey, we need more of that. And he and I started recruiting more vets into the clean energy and climate advocacy space through an organization called Operation Free that we started. And Operation Free sort of took off. You know, We had a goal of having 100 vets. And this is in August of, of 2009, by the end of the year. We had thousands across the country who got engaged. It just was something that they understood. They understood the energy issues of Iraq. They didn't understand energy and climate as much. So there was a lot of education there. In parallel, sorry, this is a long story. This is what you're looking for. But in parallel, I went back to Johns Hopkins and focused on it academically. So I began to focus on energy, understanding how solar works and complexities of the grid and all these pieces that were not natural, it's complex. I think we all, all of us in the space know it's complex. And I began to understand it better. And then I got invited to go serve it in the army post as the first special advisor on energy to the army. That the army has three times the square footage of Walmart, but had no true energy policy on how to address energy efficiency and renewables, electric vehicles. So we really began to shape that. And it was a fascinating experience I learned, I got so much deeper on technology, so much deeper on the interconnectedness of buildings. And then we launched the Energy Initiatives Task Force, which had a goal of getting a gigawatt worth of renewables on army bases. In that task force, I was doing a ton of engagement with the private sector. So developers, financiers, and others. And there was a really important mentor in my life, a guy named Richard Kaufman, who was at the Department of Energy. And Richard came over and would talk to us about securitizing our power purchase agreements. And for all of us on the federal side of the table, like, I felt like he was speaking Chinese. I had no idea what he was talking about. So I had no finance background. I literally went and bought corporate finance for dummies and began to study it. So I knew what Richard was talking about when he came over. And then when I went to the White House, I had a similar role, sort of overseeing the energy efforts across the federal sustainability, across all the federal footprint, which is an amazing job. And it's a whole different conversation. But I saw Richard come to the White House have similar conversations with energy policy people, and they would get lost in the finance minutiae. They just didn't get the market side. And so he and I launched a clean energy finance working group and started to look at how to understand these things so we can move market moving mechanisms forward. And when I decided to transition out of the White House job, I knew I didn't want to take a traditional Washington jump and go to be a lobbyist or go into federal sales. And I'd spent a ton of time in Silicon Valley in my role. And luckily had some great mentors out there who helped convince me I should go work in that space and ended up going to Bloom. And really in Bloom, 
was overseeing public sector business development. So I actually developed the first ever fuel cell microgrid with the city of Hartford in Connecticut. Did really interesting, complex transactions that I continued to learn from. And that's a long version of the story, but you know, it's sort of how I sort of began to grow up in the space over the course of sort of the last decade. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing to hear your story and the exposure that you had, you know, obviously working for the Army and then obviously as a federal chief sustainability officer from a federal perspective, looking at energy and renewable energy. So that's pretty amazing. How did it actually happen that you became like the federal chief sustainability officer under President Obama? I mean, are you technically the, the first chief or was there any? No, so I was technically the federal environmental executive. The, the name got changed sort of as I was leading, but in essence, that's what the role was. And then they changed the name when Cape Rant took it out over. But the role, so the role, two things. One, how I ended up there. Two, what does that role do? So let me start off with the role does. So the role started in the 90s, actually, trying to increase recycling across the federal footprint, right? So that's sort of where it started and nascently grew. And then under Obama, he really empowered that role through an executive order that called on the agencies to do more renewable energy, to do more electric vehicles, to drive energy efficiency, things like that. So then that sustainability piece really began to unfold under the leadership of a woman named Michelle Moore, who's a good friend of mine. So the true story of how I got the job, when I was in the army, we had coordinated a ribbon cutting at a base in upstate Maryland, I think. And the principals all jumped on a helicopter and flew up there the deputy from that office and I got a government car and drove. And so we had like six hours together in the car. And he and I really hit it off. And when Michelle decided to transition, and I knew Michelle, I mean, she, she knew what I was doing at the Army. Will Garvey, this deputy, had suggested my name. And I went in and got selected. And honestly, it was an amazing job for two reasons. One, in the White House, everyone, a lot of political appointees are working on 10,000 foot policies, right? Greenhouse gas reductions, Paris negotiations trying to drive RPSs or whatever, really important stuff, but hard to really wrap your hands around something that got accomplished through that, right? You can say, hey, this is because of X. I had a much different job and it was very focused on empowering the federal employees that had really amazing initiatives and trying to give them the support to do more renewables. Or, I mean, we give an example, a fun one. We took a group out of Washington state in Portland that had been doing this federal bike to work challenge and corporate at a national level and then had tens of thousands of federal workers biking to work in the month of May, tracking their greenhouse gas reductions and sort of highlighting the, just got to do fun stuff like that. At the same point, driving $6 billion in energy efficiency and renewable contracts, right? So just was a great fun place to work. And I felt really empowered by the Obama administration to do innovative stuff. You still had to learn to fight the bureaucracy and move the ball and all that stuff was interesting and challenging, but you know, it was a great, it was a really, really great experience. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And that you had like the opportunity to work on a lot of different cool initiatives and programs. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it was awesome. And then fun stuff like the first lady's garden, right? We got to go work in the first lady's garden or like <laughs> we played kickball on the White House lawn. Oh, that point. It was just <laughs> stuff like you pinch yourself afterwards. You're like, how did that happen? Oh, yeah. Well, once in a lifetime experience, not many people will have the opportunity. So that's amazing to hear. Can you talk about the Experts Only podcast? I know I, I mentioned your podcast 
It's great to interview another podcaster and it would be great if you could talk more about it and how has your experience been podcasting? I know we in the pre-interview were talking about it as well. It's been amazing. I mean, it's sort of the true story behind it is a, a friend who... Actually, the guy who introduced my partner, Tom, and I, this guy, Ryan Kellogg, who I'd served in Iraq with, Ryan was podcasting. His college roommate sort of a, was a podcaster. And, you know, he was always talking to me about it. And then I was at a event in Dallas moderating a panel. It was a really cool panel with a guy from Goldman Sachs and a head of research from Bank of America, really talking about some really great climate data. And no one could hear us because it was right before dinner. Everyone's getting drinks. The acoustics sucked. And I was like, this is a fascinating conversation. I need to record this. So came home and said, okay, well, how do I do that? Started to look into the idea of podcasting. Honestly, my partners at Clean Capital are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to do it. So I'm going to be part of the team. And I, what I wanted to focus on is the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. So what do I mean by that? So like what's going on in clean energy technology transitions, everything from, you know, I talked to CEO of Proterra Bus, who's doing amazing stuff, and how are they actually financing those things? Talk to guys from STEM about what's going on in the microgrid and storage space. And it just became a tool where I could learn. And that was sort of the original start is like, how do I learn about this stuff deeper? And then how do I make it in a conversation that others would, I think, listen to? And you know, it's, I think it's different than some of the pod, you know, you think about the energy gang who does amazing stuff, but it's just, you know, the same folks talking about different topics. Right. What you and I do is we have different leaders on and talk to them about their experiences. How do you even get to this space? Because I think there's a, a lot of interest for folks who want to enter the market when you talk to some of the leading venture capitalists. Like, how did you even end up in this role? And then where do you see the market? You know, where do you see it going? Like, I think those are really healthy conversations that people enjoy talking about. It's a great medium because you can have these longer conversations. And it's become a great tool for clean capital because it helps me just outreach and tell our story. And honestly, it's fun, right? It just keeps me connected. And we have a very clean logo and it's two black diamonds. I'm a skier. And so when we were choosing a name, I'm like, how do I incorporate my skiing passion into this? <laughs> that was it. I'm like, all right, we're going to call it experts only and hopefully that people like it. <laughs> I did in my first couple episodes, I was picking for folks that don't know podcasting. You can literally like find people that will read your intro and record it in like cool voices. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to pick this lady from England. Maybe that'll sound unique. And like five of us, I'm like, this sucks. I need, I need, to, find a, I need to find a different intro. And yeah. I was like, why do you have this English lady on? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I decided on the train it was going to be the right one. So it's been great. And I love these conversations because just like you and I are having, right? It's like, it's a great way to meet people. You get deeper relationships because of these conversations. I agree. And it's interesting to learn about your podcasting journey as well. And I think your roommate's friend was, it wasn't a John Lee Dumas. Yeah, that's right. John Dumas. John Dumas, who obviously has a very popular podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire. Yeah. I guess is the expert in podcasting. So he is the expert. And Ryan was, my buddy Ryan was trying to do one. And Ryan, nicely, like literally had a checklist. He's like, this is the stuff you need. I, you know, we were just talking earlier, have the same mic. And then, so <laughs> yeah. Ryan said, this is the mic you get. You plug it in, you record it this way. Like that saved me a month of research. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, it's a, it was interesting because John and I, before we started the interview, were comparing notes on on podcasting. So it's, it's interesting. 
because there's not many people within the renewable energy or solar space that you could have those conversations. So. Exactly. And can you talk about too, like obviously with your role at Clean Capital, and it's interesting because you mentioned this a little bit before with podcasting, uh, what trends are you seeing in the solar industry or specifically in solar financing? It'd be great to get your perspective. Yeah, you're seeing, I think some of the macro trends, their costs and efficiency is really key. So costs of the systems going is coming down. You've got developers that are at this point really know what they're doing. And off takers are getting more and more sophisticated. And when you have my favorite macro trend is the corporates that are really taking this on and internalizing it. And you have the Googles and Apples and Ebays and others doing just massively game-changing work on not just acquiring clean energy, but of laying the foundation on the policy level at the states to be able to make a difference. And why does that matter? So like Mike Terrell, who I interviewed from Google, example, Microsoft wanted to put in a data center in Virginia and said to the Virginia leadership, hey, we're not going to do this and bring the jobs unless we can find clean energy. And anyone knows Virginia knows Dominion Power owns that town in Richmond and has fought clean energy for a long time. And all of a sudden now they love it, right? And they're doing massive PPAs with Microsoft. Now that is really empowering. I think it's important. And then two, you're seeing more and more mature institutional capital wanting to get into these deals because they've, you know, it's, it's looking a lot more like the real estate market right? Where they can becomes, the more cookie cutter it becomes, the more regular it becomes, the better it is for the growth of the industry. That may not the growth of returns, right? But the growth of the industry, there's more and more competitive capital in here. So that's super exciting to me. And I think it's important that that continues. We still though, the repercussions that we're going to see off of the recent swarm of new governors that came in last year that put in 100% renewable goals and other things, we're not even starting to touch that yet, right? We're not even starting to touch those new markets opening up. We're just in the front end of it. And you know what happens in Illinois and Texas and now go back to Virginia, you know, that Florida, right? There's not more solar in Florida is just mind boggling. Those things will start to emerge and more and more opportunities going to come for all of us. And I think that's just great for the market. It's great for the jobs. It's great for climate as well. Definitely. These are all major interesting trends. And it's interesting too that you mentioned about how I didn't really think of how corporates are actually creating opportunities and and demanding access to renewable energy, which is allowing the states and utilities to basically change to be able to get that business. So that's interesting perspective as well. Yeah, definitely check out Mike Terrell's podcast and Experts Only. He really dives into like, how are they influencing at the state level? And it's really, really interesting to see. Not all corporates have those resources, right? Where they can put an energy policy team out there to lay the foundation of where they're going to build new stuff. So it's important that what they're building allows others, mid-tier firms or even mom and pop shops, right? To come in and and leverage and, and have access to those markets. Yeah, I'll definitely check that episode. I would love to hear more about that. So that's really interesting. And this is uh, the last question that I have is, what suggestions do you have for anyone wanting to be an entrepreneur? It would be great to get your perspective. Yeah, that's a great question. You have to have a strong stomach for the roller coaster ride. And everything, someone told me this, and it's 100% true. Everything's going to take way longer than you think it is. So you can't do it all yourself. You need to think about how to build out a good team and be willing to follow the path that 
the market sends you on because you may have what you think is the greatest idea and you find out that no one actually wants or needs that. You've got to adjust as, as necessary. And I really work hard at learning from other entrepreneurs. So I listen to How I Built This, for instance, right? It's oh, an NPR podcast. Or I read, there's a great book by Steve Case called The Third Wave, which is all about like his time at AOL and then what's the future of the internet look like? So just trying to constantly learn and accept that mistakes are going to be made and try to build teams that you trust and really execute, right? It's all, when a push comes to shove, it all, it's all about execution. Definitely. These are great suggestions on how to be an entrepreneur. People wanted to reach out to you or learn more about clean capital. What's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So clean capital is, is pretty easy. It's cleancapital.com, right? Or we're also at Twitter at, at cleancapital underscore. You can get me through LinkedIn, John Powers, or reach me through our Clean Capital website. My contact information is there. We obviously welcome folks that are, that are selling projects. If you just want to learn more about what we're doing, always feel free to reach out. And we're going to be at some, definitely some upcoming conferences this year and out and about in the community. So, you know, would love to connect. If you're ever in Buffalo, let me know. But I'm in New York City all the time as well. So, you know, we'd love to meet up and have conversations about where things are going. Thank you, John. This has been an amazing interview and we'll have your contact information and the clean capital information on the notes of the podcast. So perfect. Thank you again, John. This has been an amazing interview and I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You have a great show and, and keep it up. I know it's sometimes it's hard to keep it going sometimes. And the fact that you guys are getting some great guests and love the fact that there's some interesting people having great conversations around our market. So thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate you leading the way and your podcast as well, experts only, and as well, what you're doing at Clean Capital. It's pretty amazing to see. And thank you for your leadership. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U-Energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.